Let's pray. Lord, we invite you in this place, and we ask that as we look at the commandments, as we continue through this idea about the law, about the Decalogue, this foundation of Scripture, I pray, God, that we would realize that what you've given to us, what you've taught us, is meant to be meant to guide us and help us and even protect us, protect us from ourselves sometimes, but protect us also uh, from stepping outside of what you would want for our lives, Lord. God, I pray for your spirit to be with us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning and welcome. If you're uh, visiting with us, we want to say welcome. Thanks so much for joining us. We are going to continue on a series that we started off uh, a couple of weeks ago on the 10. Uh, basically, what we want to do is we want to kind of walk through the 10 commandments to kind of revisit them, re-look at them with fresh eyes to kind of remind ourselves what exactly is the foundation of what God wants for us. But let's recap what we talked about last week. Um, Last week, we started off with the first commandment. The first commandment is this, I am the Lord your God who rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place of your slavery. You must not have any other God but me. So last week, what we talked about was our idea of focus. So What you're going to see when we look at the full Ten Commandments, there is a pattern. There is a symmetry to how God teaches us. And so the first four commandments actually are all about our relationship with God. And so last week's commandment was all about focus. And what we learned was, is that what we think about the most, what we concentrate on the most, this is what we will get, what will get our attention, but it also create our direction for our lives. So if you have this uh, thing or what you're really passionate about or whatever it be, if it's not God, if it's not your, your walk with God, you will find yourselves veering towards that. Um, we looked at this idea of, uh, about this idea of modern idolatry. We're going to unpack that a little bit more this morning. But we look at this quote from Modern Idolatry by Friar Robert McTeague. He says this, If my life were truly formed, informed, and transformed by the first commandment, how would it be different from how I've been living for the past year? So we talk about this idea of focus, right? If I truly focus in on God in my life, not, not just like haphazardly gave lip service to it, but actually really thought about God in a, in a focused way. What would change? What would be transformed about my life? And this is the kind of the questions we've been asking ourselves. And I gave you three areas, three things to think about when it talks about our focus for God. I said last week that a focus on God must be immovable. And what I mean by immovable is in your schedule, um, if you want to accomplish anything, you must create space for it. So the almost obvious one is, for example, going to the gym. If you want to go to the gym, if you want to exercise, if you want to have that discipline in your life, if you don't create a space in your schedule for that and not let anything move that, then you will make space for it and you will do it. Oftentimes, when it comes to any kind of habit or any kind of discipline, unless you make this discipline immovable in your schedule, in your life, it will get moved by other things because there's so many things that distract us. We talked about this idea of focus on God must be measurable. And what I meant by that is, is you need to be able to look throughout the day or even at the end of the day, you must look back over the day and say, did I actually have that opportunity to think about God? And so by measurable, I mean like, uh, and we talked with this last week a little bit about how in uh, more of, um, of mainline churches, uh, especially Catholicism, there are external things that you do in your day to kind of um, um, highlight God's presence in your life. So we talk about prayer beats, we talk about prayer times, we talk about prayer journals, we talked about uh, meditation, reflection. You, you have to kind of create space for these things and you have to be able to look back over your day and going, oh, okay, I did. And the reason you do so is because unless you do that, you won't actually know if you're accomplishing your goal. Like I said, um, 
uh, if you don't, so we'll go back to the analogy of exercise, right? So if you want to, you know, lose weight, if you want to be able to kind of get in shape, well, the most honest way of doing that is, is, the, is the scale you step on, right? That will tell you whether you have accomplished what you're, you're actually trying to do. Well, to say that God's presence is your focus must be measurable to say, you know what, have I actually did so? Have I actually made space for God. And I mentioned too for my own life that I'm in my, um, in my smartphone on my calendar, every day at two o'clock, this little reminder pops up to pray, right? And it comes from the, the Jewish understanding of the five times of prayer during the day, right? This is my mid-afternoon prayer. And it's just like saying, hey, let's just remind ourselves in the midst of your day, the midst of what's going on in your day, just to take a moment to pray and to remind yourself of God's presence. And we said that a focus on God must be manageable. And what I mean by manageable is in your life, right? Whether you're a student, whether you work full-time, whether it's a bit of both, whether it's part-time, whatever it be, you have to be able to manage this. You can't make uh, proclamations like, uh, I'm going to pray for five hours in the day, or I'm going to get up at five o'clock in the morning. By the way, if you want to get up at five o'clock in the morning, buy a puppy. That will help you get up at five o'clock o'clock in the morning, but um, unless you have a puppy, then you may not want to get up at five o'clock in the morning. So it must be manageable. It must be realistic. And we talked about the, this uh, passage of scripture in the bottom from Romans one twenty-five. And what focus is, is an exchange, right? So focus on God is an exchange for something else. So what we will do is that either we will focus in on God or we will focus in on sports. We'll focus on entertainment. We'll focus in on fashion and clothing and money and affluence and, and all. We will focus on something, right? You, do, you don't just, your, your mind is something that has to be funneled in towards something or else it will be funneled towards, every, funneled towards everything. We live in one of the most distracted cultures in the history of distracted cultures, not just from media, not just from the, the demands of your time to the day. And I just want you to know, I, just, I know everybody's busy, right? You ever ask somebody, well, how are you doing? Well, I'm busy. I'm busy too. We're all busy. Everyone's busy. We are all busy. But that doesn't mean we can't discipline ourselves to find time for God, to focus in our God. And so that's what, the, that's what we talked about last week in understanding the, uh, the first commandment. So t- this morning, we're going to continue on to our second commandment, and we're going to revisit Friar uh, Robert McTeague and kind of talk about his um, article on modern idolatry, because I thought it was really well written. And this is what he says. How do you know what your priorities are? One answer, look at what has the first claim on your time, energy, and money. We talk about this, and we talked about this at our membership uh, time together a couple weeks ago, and we talked about what does it mean to be a member of Uptown Community Church? Well, a member really talks about our time, our talents, and our treasure. We say that these are the three areas of our lives that we get to choose what we want to do with. Because unless we say we want to commit that to this community, towards this body of Christ, towards being in a, in, in, in a, in a relation with other Christ followers, it doesn't work. Well, what Father, uh, Father Matigue says is that, well, if you ask yourself, what do I spend the most amount of money on? What do I spend the most amount of time on? What do I spend the most amount of attention on? This is what will be your idols in your life. He goes on to say this, there is an altar at the center of the human heart and we can't bear for it to be empty. One of the things that's interesting about uh, human beings, and if you study anthropology or, or study, uh, have any kind of interest in anthropology, what anthropologists find most interesting about humanity is, is that we are by nature a very religious creatures. Now, I'm not talking about Christianity. I'm not talking about anything. I'm just saying that when we, when we discover ancient uh, people groups, when we discover ancient tribes around, uh, around the world, unreached people groups, what we find is they have a very rich sense of religion. 
It seems like ancient human beings always had this sense that there was something more in this world. And you can argue with that. You can, you can have a conversation with it. But the reality is, is that there is this truth about humanity that we are meant to worship something. We are created for that. It's, it's part, of, a, a part of who we are. And so what he's saying is that there, our hearts are prone towards worship. They're prone towards adoration. And unless we focus that in on what, what deserves it, who deserves it, it will go towards other things. There was a time idolatry was the norm when the advent of Christendom, the religion of one God, held sway over individuals, cultures, and nations. That time is over. For the past few decades, we have moved into what many call, at least in the West, a post-Christian era. So what we are finding within Western cultures is that we are what we call post-Christian. You've heard people say that, oh, you know, such and such a country was a Christian nation. Now, I don't know if that is, is, and you can argue the truth of that, but really what they're trying to say is this country was based upon Judeo-Christian understanding of law, of, of, of human rights, and all that kind of stuff. You go, okay, I get that. Whether it's a Christian nation, nations can't really be Christians, human beings can be. But uh, I don't know if nations are. But what we are seeing now is we are kind of moving past the idea of Christianity. We're moving past the idea of saying we are now post-Christian. That's, if you heard the term post-modernism, that's what post-Christian means. We are moving away from the narrative of a Judeo-Christian understanding of a culture to saying, okay, now how do we reinvent ourselves? And for the most part, um, it's gone really badly. And, uh, and it, it's just, it hasn't really, it, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting um, uh, amalgamation of a whole bunch of different narratives and ideals and all that kind of stuff together. And it hasn't really gone well. And the reason it hasn't gone well, and I would argue it hasn't gone well, is because a unifying narrative within a country is important because it helps the country understand what it, the focus of it is and what is important. But if everybody's saying, no, no, this is what I think is important, no, no, this is what I think is important, then you have this kind of, cacophony of all these competing narratives that nobody knows what is meant to kind of lead us, guide us into the direction. And so what Father Matique says is that when we are now in post-Christian uh, culture, we're in a post-Christian uh, time period, and nobody knows quite what that means and what, that, what the direction it's going to look like. The video you saw there is from a Christian comedian, uh, his name is John Chris, and he puts these kind of funny videos together. And one of the things that I think is so interesting about Christians is that when we talk about this idea of the second commandment of idols, and we're going to unpack that statement in a moment. But most Christians will say, well, we don't, we, don't, we don't have idols. We don't worship idols. And what I would say to you, and I actually had in my, in my, in my writing the sermon up, I actually had a whole tangent on what uh, idolatry looks like in Christianity. And I actually deleted a whole bunch of that just because like, okay, this is, this is too much of, of, a, of a bunny trail. But what is interesting is, is that we as Christ followers we are meant to not have anything that supersedes what is our relationship with God, but yet within Western Christianity, we are exactly in that midst of that right now. I was going to have this whole um, uh, slides on this uh, Instagram ac account called Preacher Sneakers. Now, if those of you haven't heard what Preacher Sneakers are, uh, I recommend you go to this, uh, this Instagram account because it is hilarious and it is horribly sad. Because what the, what the account does is it shows prominent preachers from mostly America, and it shows what kind of shoes they're wearing. But what is interesting about the account is that some of these preachers are wearing shoes that are in the thousands of dollars. And so the conversation is, is this what, you know, is this what, you know, preachers should, you know, and everyone's looking at my feet right now. Birkenstocks, five years old, so just to kind of rock them out there. So, uh, if, if it's not these, it's Chucks, so don't worry about me. Um, but the point of what the whole, the whole point of the Instagram account is, what does it mean to be a Christ follower, and what does it mean to talk about materialism and, and kind of uh, affluence in a Christ culture? 
And so the whole account was all about this idea of saying, okay, is this really what we should be aspiring to? And, and, and the reality is, actually, it's brought up a really interesting conversation of saying, you know, churches today have been kind of saying, how do we attract people back into churches? And we've talked about this a little bit in, in, at UCC, where we just confess that, you know, we are now, in, whether it's in Canada or America or in European nations, people just don't go to church anymore or see it as irrelevant or not really as being as truthful or uh, um, helping us to guide us in truth. And so churches or pastors are saying, okay, what do I need to do to make myself more relevant, right? And so the video was of this of this pastor, and if you listen to it and, and you kind of, there's real... There's kind of a whole bunch of biting remarks in it, right? So the pastor's like, well, my church isn't growing. I've tried prayer. I've tried fasting, but that doesn't work. But maybe I need to change my hairstyle. And if I have some skinny jeans on and uh, some tattoos, maybe that will make me relevant and that will make my church grow. And then at the very end there, the guy says something kind of important. He goes, you know, hey, we're going to go and we're going to swag out your church and we're going to put wood paneling on the front and that will make people want to come to your church. Or we have really big lights and if we have like, you know, project, if we have all this, then people will come to your church. And, and, and the reality is, is we are spending tons of money on this, but we are not seeing an uptick of people returning back to church. What we're seeing is our, is our media budgets are increasing in churches, and don't even get me started on that whole tangent. But it's like, it's an interesting conversation. Like, like what, do you, what do you need to do to attract people back into church? And the conversation kind of goes into an interesting way. One of my favorite writers is a guy named Neil Postman. And Neil Postman wrote a book back in 1985. And the reason I tell you the year is because this book could have been written yesterday and it would still be as relevant as it was back then. The book is called Amusing Ourselves to Death. And in 1985, what Neil Postman was saying is that he was looking at television. This is, this is the time before the internet. This is the time before mega movies. And like there were movies, but like wasn't what we have. It was the time before this, the media machine had really kind of ramped up. And in 1985, well, actually in 1984, 83, um, Neil Postman kind of looked at our culture and said, wow, entertainment is changing how we understand culture. If you're looking for a summer book to read, Neil Postman's Amusing Ourselves to Death, it's very thin. It'll take you like a couple of days to read. That and Ryan Holiday's Trust Me, I'm Lying are two of the best books talking about media today and our culture and how to understand it. And Neil Postman's book he wrote in 1985, he said this, Americans no longer talk to each other. They entertain each other. They do not exchange ideas. They exchange images. They do not argue with propositions. They argue with good looks, celebrities, and commercials. Now remember, this is written in 1985, but this could have been written yesterday because this is exactly it. There's no political platform. There's no movement that happens without a celebrity. If you don't have a celebrity, don't even bother because people aren't going to listen to you. If you don't have someone beautiful, someone, you know, uh, uh, just having, uh, having exactly the image that this culture wants, unless you have that person as a front person of whatever you're trying to do, it will not happen. But what's interesting in the book is Neil Postman talks about religion. Because he says, you know, this is the time of the televangelist, right? In the 1980s was a very weird decade. And it was weird because Christians were starting to now say, hey, we want to be as cool and hip as everybody else. And they did it with pastel colors and big hair, but they still did it, right? And they said, okay, how do we make sure people know that we're as hip and cool and, and use all the media marketing tools that the world uses and commercials, and let's use them now in the church, and so what Neil Postman says, it's kind of interesting, he says, I believe I'm not mistaken in saying that Christianity is a demanding and serious religion. When it is delivered as easy and amusing, it is another kind of religion altogether. This is written in freaking 1985. Like, this could be written yesterday. Like, like, he is so right. And remember, Neil Postman isn't a Christ follower. He, he comes from a Jewish background, but he was non-practicing Jew. 
So what he was saying is so fascinating that he is a, as a, a sociology professor at New York University at NYU is looking at a culture, but looking at religion, seeing these, uh, these talking heads on television, these televangelists, and, and, and the people always asking for money and all. And he's looking at this going, you know, I don't know much about Christianity because I don't come from that background. But from what my understanding of it is, it's supposed to be this. But when it goes on television, when it has this kind of a, uh, an, uh, an aura to it, it, it becomes something altogether different, right? What you say is as important as how you say it. And I just wish more pastors would read this book or remind themselves what it is because what we say is as important as how we say it. And it doesn't matter what you look like. It doesn't matter the, 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 the type of building that you have. If what you say doesn't line up with what Jesus teaches, the message is lost on most people. And that hypocrisy is kind of, it oozes out of us a little bit. Like when a church tells you how much they care about the poor, but then asks for $5 million to expand their building, I know this is a little uncomfortable moment here, but it's kind of like, ah. You know, if the church tells you how much they care about people, but they spend tons of money on lights and, and speakers and, and all that kind of stuff, you have to ask yourself, what, do they really, what, what are our values really saying? Right? What do our values really say? And so what Neil Postman says is this idea of that, you know, we have come so image obsessed that we've forgotten to ask ourselves if this is right. Now, the reason I'm talking all about this is because this leads us into the next commandment. And believe it or not, God speaks about this thousands of years ago because he knew how humanity would evolve, but also he knew what was in our hearts back then. In Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 to 5, it says this, You must not make for yourself an idol of any kind or an image of anything in the heavens or on the earth or in the sea. You must not bow down to them or worship them. Now, we have heard this commandment before, but I would propose to you this morning, and as we walk through it, you're going to realize that perhaps this commandment actually is as relevant right now and as relevant for Christ followers as it is for people who perhaps outside the church as it was when it was given thousands of years ago. But one thing I need to do when we kind of unpack this, I'm actually going to look at this in two different perspectives. Because I realized when I was studying this commandment that, that idol and image might be two different concepts. So we want to unpack both of these concepts because what God is teaching in them is actually kind of interesting because he's trying to help us to understand what, what it is. When we talk about an idol, an idol, and I use the word direction, but you'll see as you unpack it, it's a little bit, it's a little bit more than that, but you'll, you'll see what I mean by direction. And we talk about image, what we're going to see is reflection, and we're, we're going to unpack that as well too. So let's kind of jump into this, and let's kind of see what God is trying to tell us. Austin Klein, when he talks about the second commandments, is this. It is believed by most theologians that this commandment was designed to underscore the radical difference between God as creator and God's creation. It was common in various Near East religions to use representations of the gods to facilitate worship. But in ancient Judaism, this was prohibited because no aspect of the creation could adequately stand in for God. Now remember... We talk about the Bible, and we talk about it in a way that makes sense. And by way it makes sense, I mean, we have to first understand it as an ancient Middle Eastern culture, right? And in ancient Middle Eastern cultures, Canaanite religions, Babylonian, Egyptians, they had tons of iconography for their deities, 
right? And so whether it's Egyptians with Osiris and Horus and all that, whether it's Canaanites with, uh, with Baal and uh, Asherah poles and the other religions, the Assyrians, they all had ways of reflecting the, these God images for their people. And let's be honest, right? When you have a statue of something, it's easier to worship, right? Because you're not using your imagination like Barney tells you to. You're actually seeing this thing. It's like, okay, I'm going to worship that because I see it. Well, God tells his people as after he brings them out of Egypt, before he sends them to the promised land, and by the way, the promised land is not empty, right? We have to always remind ourselves that the promised land was not empty. It was promised, but there's still some work to be done. Before God sends them there, he says, listen, as you walk through these people groups, as you understand these cultures around you, they will represent God in these images and these ways looking at it. But you as my people need to understand that I am the creator and I am above creation. And there is nothing about creation that can adequately reflect or convey who and what I am. And so this is kind of the underpinning. This is the foundation of, uh, of this commandment. So let's take a look, first of all, about this idea of idolatry. Because remember I said to you that I think idolatry and imagery are actually two different concepts. They, they link together, but I want to unpack them separately so you'll see what I'm talking about here. When we talk about this idea of idolatry, what we have to remind ourselves is that whatever idolatry is, however you understand it, you must first understand it as originating in your heart. And in Ezekiel chapter 14, now the book of Ezekiel, if you've ever read through it, is a very fascinating book. Ezekiel is about a time when the Israelites were partly in Babylonian captivity, but also partly coming back. Now, remember, history lesson here for a second. When the Babylonians destroyed Israel, they took the, the young men with them back to Babylon. And remember Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, right? These are, these are four individuals who are living in Babylon. The point of the Babylonians, they were smart. What they were trying to do is take the elite of Israel, the Jewish boys, and indoctrinate them to the Babylonian religion. This is why they were treated like princes in Babylon. And, and remember, you come from a Jewish Judaist, uh, Judaistic culture of monotheistic, of, of, uh, of intimacy rules, all these things, and you go to Babylon, where everything you could ever want to experience is right there. And the king says, have at it. Well, what he's trying to do is he's trying to transform the thinking of the religion, right? So the book of Ezekiel is, is, is when the people begin to return back to Israel, and, and, and they, kind of also, they bring Babylon back with them. Right? And so in Ezekiel chapter 14, verse 3, it says this, Son of man, these leaders have set up idols in their hearts. They have embraced things that will make them fall into sin. So what, what, what God is saying to the prophet Ezekiel is that whatever idolatry is, however you understand it, you think of it as external as I see something, I see it as internal, I want to become something. Right? Idols aren't about, I'm going to place this here. This is why we as you know, postmodern, Western civilized people go, well, I don't have any idols. And by saying that, you fall into the trap of idolatry because you don't realize it's not about what you see or what is reflected. It's about what actually exists in your heart. We see this again in Exodus, right? You must not make a treaty of any kind with the people living in the land. They lust after their gods, offering sacrifices to them. They will invite you to join them in their sacrificial meals, and you will go with them. Then you will accept their daughters who have sacrificed to other gods as wives for your sons, and they will seduce your sons to commit adultery against me by worshiping other gods. Now, I just want you to see the language there, right? They lust after their God. They are being seduced by their gods. This is very heart kind of emotional kind of relational manipulation. 
It's not about, hey, this deity, he healed me, or she healed me, or this deity, I prayed to it, and I won the lottery, right? That would show you that this deity actually is, has power and actually has strength. That's not what they're saying. It's about this idea of the heart, right? The language for enticement in this idea of idolatry is not about, hey, this, if, you, if you sacrifice this deity, you will have all your acne gone, or you will have, find your husband or your wife, or you will have rain for your crops. That's not what they say. It's an emotional appeal to the heart. Why? Because that's where idolatry uh, originates, right? But see, Jesus kind of affirms this as well, too, in Matthew 15. This is why we talk about here, and I know it's kind of comical, but when the world says, follow your heart, just follow your heart. Listen to your heart. Trust your heart. The Bible actually says the opposite. The Bible says your heart is actually kind of a, it's, it's, it's like this, this, this pot, this cup, this, this, this container of actually kind of dark things. And, you know, you, the face that you project out to the world can seem nice. It can seem, you know, all together. But inside here where no one else can see it, that's where the evil, that's where the darkness kind of, it, it grows. And so when Jesus is talking and he ta- he's teaching to the Pharisees, and the Pharisees are, are talking about externals, like, hey, clean the cup or, or make sure you, you follow these traditions or follow this r- ritual. And Jesus says to them, like, from, it's, uh, for from the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, all sexual immorality, theft, lying, and slander. These are what defile you. Eating with unwashed hands will never defile you. So what Jesus was trying to connect for these people is that you look to the externals, right? And this is, the church has done this way too often, right? If you come into the church and you're wearing a suit or you're looking, you have it all together, wow, they must be very spiritual. They, they, they seem very affluent, and they, they seem like good people, and they, 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 you know, they don't smell, or they don't, you know, whatever. They, they must be godly people. And Jesus goes, you're falling into the tap, trap of idolatry. If you judge somebody by the externals, you forget about the heart. And the heart is really what reveals what's in there. The heart is what's going to tell you what's going on. So idolatry first must start off the heart. Um, Tim Keller wrote a great article about idols of the heart. He says this, Anything you look to more than Christ for a sense of acceptability, joy, significance, and hope, and security is by definition your God. Something you adore and serve with your whole life and heart. What he's saying is so interesting is that there are things in your life, without you realizing it or not, that you want more than you want God. And again, we've talked about this before, and we know these things exist because this is the focus of our lives. He goes on to say this, that is an idol by definition. The sign of idolatry is always inordinate anxiety, inordinate anger, and inordinate discouragement. What's so interesting, what what, uh, Tim Keller says, I think is so true. If I said to you right now, God told me to tell all of you that if you continue to drink coffee, you will not go to heaven. Now, just be clear here. I've just said to you, I've just imposed upon you that there is an external thing that God wants from you that will preclude you from going to heaven. Now, you can argue with me, but then I would say to you, look, in Matthew it says, those that drink caffeine are bound for hell. And for us caffeine drinkers, like, well, I kind of feel like it before I have a coffee, but after I feel pretty good, but I don't know about that, right? If I said to you that unless you got rid of coffee in your life, you will not, you will not be part of the kingdom of heaven, you will not go to heaven. Your resistance to that, if I could show you in Scripture, if it exists in Scripture, shows your level of idolatry towards it. Whatever you refuse to give to God is your idol by definition. Anything you fight the most about to retain, to hold on to, you find a way to kind of justify it, that's your idol. 
All right? At Uptown Community Church, we talk about, this, uh, we talk about our lives being open-handed. And by open-handed, there are things you hold in your life. There's things you hold in your life, right? Your relationships, your money, your, your affluence, your, your sense of whatever it be. And we hold on to these so tightly. And, and, and really what it means to be a Christ follower for the rest of your life is God kind of prying open your fingers a little bit. And saying the things you're holding on so tightly are actually kind of poison to your spirit. And, and, and really what you have to understand is that unless you give me everything, I can do nothing. Because the one thing that you hold back you say, aha, you can have everything, right? When I talk about money for you who are students, like, hey, Lord, you can have my $2.43 in my account. It's all yours. I got nothing. Go ahead. But what if I ask you to get rid of your social media or, or, or Netflix? Whoa, whoa, pastor. Now you're getting a little crazy here, right? And please hear me very clearly. I'm not trying to identify anything that you need to get rid of or do. I'm just saying to you that whatever you resist the most in your life to get rid of, that by definition is an idol. Idols are good things, family, achievement, work, career, romance, talent, etc., that we turn into ultimate things in order to get the significance and joy we need. A good thing becoming an ultimate thing is the idol. There's nothing wrong with being married. There's nothing wrong with wanting to be in a relationship. There's nothing wrong with wanting to succeed at your job or doing well at your job. There's nothing wrong with any of these things. But when these things become ultimate things, if you lose these things... Now, here's interesting, and this is going to get uncomfortable here. If you lose your job, if you lose a relationship, if you lose money, what is your reaction? Because your reaction is going to identify for you right now your level of idolatry towards that thing. And please hear me clear. Nobody wants to lose a relationship or a job or any, any part of your life. Of course not. But if these things are what give you significance, if these are the things that give you meaning and you lose it, like, people will shake their fists at God, like, how dare you? We were so happy together. I, I worked so hard for that job, that promotion. I, you know, I really wanted that vacation. I really wanted... And when we lose it, our level of anxiety, our level of discouragement, our level of despondency at losing that, that actually will indicate what is an idol in our lives. If we lose a good thing, it makes us sad. If we lose an idol, it devastates us. This is what's so interesting about people who kind of have, uh, uh, so I was a youth pastor for about 20 years, uh, approximately. It uh, feels like longer, but it was a long time. And whenever, as a youth pastor, uh, you always kind of have to deal with the breakup, right? And the breakup was, you know, uh, a young couple meet, and of course, it's like, oh, I love you, and I love you forever, and I love you. You know, I, it felt so interesting that, you know, I love you forever really only works out of three or four months, but I don't, I don't know how the exchange rate with the uh, digital I love you forever to the actuality of staying together is. I'm not quite sure. But what's always interesting to me is not so much about the relationship. Well, of course, you want, you know, appropriateness in all areas, but what was interesting to me most is the breakup, is how they would respond to the breakup. Life has no meaning, Pastor. I can't even be, I can't even think. Uh, you know, it's just like, and of course, without trying to laugh at them, it's like, oh, I'm so sorry. It's, you know, because you know, really in the back of your mind, like, I'm surprised I made it this long. But you can't say that, right? These are things pastors think about. They don't say, by the way, you should be really thankful that we have that buffer because, yeah. So what was interesting is, is a breakup. It's how do they respond to the breakup? Because what, how they respond to the breakup is really what this person came to represent in their lives. Ultimate meaning. They found their ultimate significance, their ultimate affirmation from this individual. And when that person left their life, all of a sudden, all of that cascaded into this kind of, like, I've got nothing. Wait, you've got nothing? So the God of the universe, 
loves you, reaches out to you, created everything, died on the cross for you, and you've got nothing? So all of a sudden, the ultimate became, so all of a sudden, the good became the ultimate, and the ultimate became the okay? That's idolatry. That's when we take a good thing and make it the ultimate thing. Now, let me show you how the process of idolatry works, because there is a process to this. And the great news is, is the book of Exodus gives us a great glimpse. So here's Moses on the mountain. He's meeting with God. And the people know this because there's lightning, there's clouds, there's earthquakes. They see this, right? And they have heard God's voice. Remember last week we said when God told Moses the law, he wanted the people to hear it so they would trust Moses what they're saying. So Moses up on the mountain, they hear God speaking, and they're at the bottom of the mountain. They're like, you know what? Moses has been gone for a couple of days. I think we should make an idol. And we see this in Exodus chapter uh, 30, uh, 32. When the people saw how long it was taking Moses to come back down the mountain, they gathered around Aaron. Come on, they said. Make us some gods who can lead us. We don't know what happened to this. <laughs> they don't know what happened to this fellow Moses. This guy who did all this stuff for him, this is how they call him now. This fellow Moses, I don't know. This guy out there, the guy with the beard, you know, the Charleston Aston looking guy. That guy there, right? He's been gone a long time, a couple of days, and we don't really know him that well. So this fellow Moses who brought us here from the land of Egypt. So how does idolatry begin? It begins with the absence from God, right? Absence from God creates a spiritual vacuum that needs to be filled. Remember what Friar Robert Boutique says? I love this line. There is an altar at the center of the human heart, and we can't bear for it to be empty. We are created to worship God. We don't worship God. We will worship something. So Moses is up in the mountain. He's meeting with God, and the people know this. He's been gone for a couple of days, and people come to Aaron saying, hey, make us a God. Because this is the God, and, and this is the God that's going to, is going to, we're going to get the ultimate meaning from. Now watch this. So Aaron says, uh, take the gold rings from the ears of your wives and sons and daughters and bring them to me. All the people took the gold rings from the ears and brought them to Aaron. Then Aaron took the gold, melted it down, and molded it in the shape of a calf. Idolatry thrives in affluence. Remember, these people were slaves for hundreds of years. For hundreds of years, the Israelites were slaves to the Egyptians. They didn't have gold. They didn't have fine things. Why? They're slaves. Remember the Bible tells us that when Israel left Egypt, the people gave, uh, they gave the Israelites gold and earrings and precious things. So the people are carrying, for the first time, they have wealth. As they're leaving the country, they have wealth. So what does Aaron say to them? Hey, let's take that wealth and let's make a God. Let's make a God from that. Idolatry thrives in affluence. Idolatry is when good things become ultimate things, right? What is a good thing? There's nothing wrong with gold. There's nothing wrong with money. Please hear me clearly. We talk about this at UCC. There's nothing wrong with money. How you choose to use it shows your heart more than anything else. Idols are made of what we value. You don't make an idol of things you hate. I've never heard of an idol of broccoli. It's not that popular. Now, kale, that's a whole different story, okay? But broccoli, not so much, right? So I've never heard of a, of, of a, uh, of a god of our idol of something that we hate. Idolatry uh, thrives in affluence. This is why Western cultures are so immersed in idolatry without realizing it. It only thrives in affluence. You can only make gods and deities of, of the excess of your life. If you are subsistence living, if you are just looking for something, someone to, to help you, you don't create a god from the, from the gold you have because you don't have gold. So idolatry thrives in affluence. Now look what happens next here. 
Idolatry creates gods that we can manipulate, right? Idolatry is ultimately being led. Look at verse 5. When the people saw it, they exclaimed, Oh, Israel, these are the gods who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Aaron saw how excited the people were, so he built an altar in front of the calf. Now, here's, here's something that's kind of interesting. The Bible says calf, but the, the people said these are the gods. So what we believe is that there's actually maybe two or three. So there is, there is not just one, but there's a couple. That's why they're saying these are the gods uh, in the plural form. Now, the interesting part there, and remember, when the Bible gives us a little detail, it does it for a reason, right? So Aaron has created this gold calf, and, and people said this is the, these are the gods that got us out of Egypt. Aaron is so excited, so what's his next step? To build an altar. Why do you build an altar in front of an idol? Because you want to create a place where people can worship the idol. Right? You create, you've all of a sudden, and spoiler for the next point, you're starting to create a system around the idol. People have an unrelenting need to find significance in something beyond themselves. It is how they're created to be. Yet in their self-absorption, they often prefer gods of their own making to the one true God. In effect, they want to make God in their image rather than being in God's. I have to confess to you that as I've been thinking and looking at this culture with this idea of the framework of idolatry and imagery in my mind, I've seen how much we as a culture are, are now focusing in on this. We focus in on people. We, and again, forget the Christian and non-Christian part of it. I'm just saying because Christians are, 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 are immersed in idolatry as well too without even realizing it. Right? We are immersed in it. And so what, what we see here is that idolatry is, is, is the, the point of idolatry is, is that we just really want a God that we can manipulate. And it's also kind of how we view our own relationship with God. If something doesn't, in our life doesn't go well, what happens? We get mad at God. Why do we get mad at God? Because it didn't go to plan. What's the plan? Well, I don't know the plan, but I know my plan. My plan is I always be happy and comfortable and get everything the way I want it. That's my plan. That's my religion. Oh, I'm sorry. God isn't really, a, he doesn't ascribe to your religion. He ascribes to developing a character of Christ-likeness in you and his way of using Christ, getting Christ-likeness in you really kind of relates to the cross as opposed to affluence, comfort, wealth, and all the other things that we think we want, right? So here's the next part, right? Idol idols require their own religion. Idolatry isn't simply a thing. It is a process of becoming. Now look at verse 6. Then he announced, tomorrow will be a festival to the Lord. The people got up early the next morning to sacrifice burnt offerings and peace offerings. After this, they celebrated with feasting and drinking, and they indulged in pagan revelry. Idolatry creates a system of living. The reason it does so is because whatever idol it is. Now, take for example, this is going to hurt a little bit here. Take for example, wine. Wine is, it's, it's a drink, and you can like it, red, white, rosé, and all, tons of different kinds of wine. I, I enjoy wine. I, I've had a, a glass here and there. Just so you know, our denomination, it's okay, so don't freak out, so I uh, don't have to worry about that. But what's interesting about wine is, is that wine has become, in some ways in our culture, its own religion. And by religion, I mean people don't just want to drink wine. They want to taste wine. They don't just want to taste wine. They want to go to where it's produced. And they want to make a whole weekend of it because they just need to really understand the texture of the grapes. And 
I like wine, but I, I don't know. I, it all tastes the same after a while. I don't know. I, I, I know I don't have a refined palate, so fair enough. I, I'll, I'll give you that one. This is the guy who likes chicken wings, so, you know, do with that what you may. Right? But, but wine has become its own religion with its own, uh, its own pilgrimages, with its own uh, different kinds. Like, and it's become its own thing. What I think is so interesting about this passage of Scripture here is people complain about, you know, church a lot. Hey, church is at 10 a.m., 10.30, 1 o'clock, 2 p.m. Like, I would like a church service that really fits my lifestyle. And my lifestyle is I like to get, wake up in the morning around, you know, 1 o'clock in the afternoon. And, uh, I, I, you know, I want to take about two hours to read the paper, have some coffee, and, 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 and just do whatever I want. And then, you know, I like to wander into a service around, you know, 3 three, four o'clock, and then I really want that service only about a half hour because I got a lot to get done, and Monday's coming, and so, you know, what is interesting about this whole part here is early the next morning, they all got up because they wanted to have revelries, and what I think is so interesting about their religion is it just really looks like kind of a party, doesn't it? It just has a whole kind of parts of a party to it, right? They want to drink, they want to dance, they want a pagan revelry, and whatever pagan revelry is, there were some rabbinic commentators who had, uh, had a lot to say about that, and I don't want to get into that. But the point is, it just, it just looks like a great party. Whatever your religion is, whatever your idol is, it will create a system of life that you must create around it. Why? Because it, 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 it needs worship, whatever it would be. And again, I picked on wine because it's, it's one that... Um, <clears throat> I think it's obvious, but it could be anything. It could be anything. It could, I, I know this guy on, um, on, on Facebook, and uh, he, he's a marathon runner. And I don't know why he would do that voluntarily, but he does. But he goes all over the world. Like, he goes all over the world. And he takes pictures all over the world of him running a marathon in this country, and in this country, and this country. I'm like... I just want to go there and eat their food and, and, and see some of the sights there. Like, I don't want to run, you know, like for 24 kilometers or 42 kilometers. He does marathons. It's like, this is just gross. I don't know. Like, this just not seem... But he loves it. His marathon running has become his religion. And it is, it's a religion. Like, nobody... He's not sponsored by anyone, just to be clear, for marathon running. He pays out of pocket to do these things. Right? So you're trying to save up for a vacation to go to some resort. He's going... And he goes, like, on multiple ones throughout the year. Like this, is, like, this is thousands upon thousands of dollars you have to spend to fly to a country. I don't know if you buy a new unitard when you get there. I, I, I don't know how that works, right? And then you run, and you, you take a whole bunch of pictures and selfies, and the next day you fly back home. I, I don't know. But it's his thing. It's his religion. And I look at that kind of going, huh. It, like, I, you can run. Be a runner. Absolutely, right? You can wear your unitards. You know, hey, absolutely, Right? But when it costs so much, when it has a whole bunch of uh, things around it, you're like, oh, it's more than just running. It's, it's actually it's, it's, its own religion in, in some ways as well. And that's what idolatry does. It creates its own religion. So we see what idolatry is, but let's talk about now the image part. Because I said to you that the Bible, for some reason, doesn't just say, don't have idols. It says, don't have idols or don't create images. So it seems as if almost as if God is trying to give two different ways of looking at it. All right, so let me give you a kind of a definition of an image. This comes from a guy named John F. Kilner who writes a lot about this topic. He says this, when the Bible talks about something being an image, that means it has a connection with something else in a way that it also may involve a reflection of it. So while idolatry is a direction, image is a reflection. Now, let me tell you how the Bible views image, right? So there's two concepts in the Bible for the image of God. The first one is us. 
right? So in the Bible, the first thing that we learn about humanity, the first thing that we are taught, right? So the Bible tells us that God creates creation and however he does that over 1.4 billion years or seven days or farther, I don't care, right? I'm just saying to you that God creates everything. Okay, great. The first thing we learn about humanity is, the first thing we learn about when we make an entrance into this, this story of creation is the Bible tells us that God created us to reflect his image. Now, um, in Catholicism, in, in Latin, there's a phrase they use called imago Dei. And if you come from that background, you'll recognize it just means the image of God. But for imago Dei, for Catholicism, and more of the mainline, it's, it actually has a whole component of theology behind it. I don't, I don't want to go too far into it, but the idea simply is that but being made in the image of God is, is really the, the essence of that is the, is the ability to freely choose or reject God, this idea of free will. Right, the image of God is, is this reflection of the choice of God. And so what's interesting is, is the Bible tells us that humanity was created in the image of God. And, and in chapter 2 of Genesis, which is kind of like a, Genesis 1 is more linear, kind of like day 1, day 2, day 3. It's like, oh, okay, I get that. Chapter 2 is more of the narrative story. It's kind, of, it's kind of flushing out a couple of the details. And in verse 7, it says something very peculiar. It says this, that, that not only did God create humanity to be in his image, then he breathes his spirit. And in the Hebrew, the word is ruha, right? And this word spirit is the same image of the Holy Spirit. So humanity, whoever humanity was, Adam and Eve were, they were meant to be created in God's image, male and female. Male and female is the best representation of God. So they're created in God's image. But the second thing the Bible tells us is that this image of God was filled with God's spirit. And that, look what it says here, right? Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground. He breathed the breath of life into the man's nostrils, and the man became a living person. And again, rabbinic teaching on this is so fascinating because their idea was that before God's spirit entered into humanity, we were just animals, the same flesh as animals, that somehow God's spirit transformed us into something that was living. It was truly alive as, as, as the image of God deserves. So the first thing the Bible tells us about the image of God is that it was meant to be humanity. The second thing the Bible tells us about the image of God is that it is also Jesus. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, Paul to the church in Colossae says this, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. Remember how many times Jesus says to people listening, you haven't seen God, but if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, right? So Jesus is giving a direct reflection of himself to the Father. He says, I only do my Father's will, right? I only do my Father's will. I only live as the Father wants me to live. And so what Jesus says is that I am the image of the unseen God. In John chapter 1, verse 18, it says, no one has ever seen God but the unique one. Again, a phrase that Jesus uses about himself who, himself, who, who is himself God, is near to the Father's heart. He has revealed God to us. So Jesus is saying something very interesting. He's saying, listen, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I am a direct reflection of the Father. And 2 Corinthians 3.18 kind of takes these two concepts now of humanity's image and Christ's image and melts it together. It says this, So all of us who have the veil removed can see and reflect the glory of the Lord, and the Lord who is the Spirit makes us more and more like him as we are changed into his glorious image. Here's what he's saying. That the image of humanity was broken by sin. Right? Because Genesis chapter two, Genesis chapter one and two are beautiful and they're wonderful. That remember I used the word harmony to describe humanity's relation to uh, creation? Well, Genesis chapter three comes along 
and breaks that harmony. It breaks that image of God. In 2 Corinthians, Paul says, the Spirit is meant to give us harmony back with God. And it's meant to restore that image. Think of a broken mirror. You've seen all the shards in it all, all, all put together. Well, the Holy Spirit wants to take that image and wants to remove the shard and, and, and heal that mirror piece by piece by piece. And as you know, when a mirror cracks, there's thousands of pieces and it takes a long period of time. Well, that's sanctification. That's the process of becoming the image of God once again. It's not instantaneous. Now, here's what I think you need to understand about the image. The image of God is really a reflection, you know, mirror, mirror on the wall. Who is as godly as me? What does God look like? You know what I find so interesting about God is when people describe God, they're really describing themselves, but kind of an, uh, an idealized version of themselves, right? God hates the people I hate, obviously. God sees the world the way I see it, obviously, right? Like, like God can't be other. He must be what you think he is. So when we talk about the image of God, what we're really saying is there's two ways of looking at it, right? On the one hand, when we talk about the image of God, humanity distorts that image, right? And that's the funhouse mirrors. You ever gone to a funhouse mirror? There's one mirror that makes me look really skinny and I like it. And I want to steal it put it in my house so that I don't have to go to the gym anymore. That whenever I look in the mirror, it's like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm skinny again. And so that's the mirror I would like because it just distorts the image of what I am. Right? But there's other parts of the image as well too, right? So the image of God, humanity either distorts it, right? And distorts it in a whole bunch of different uh, weird ways, or it just magnifies themselves. We just reflect ourselves on and on. And oftentimes when people hear people talking about God, I, I kind of want to say to them, you're not really describing God. You're describing your likes and dislikes. You're describing what you are comfortable with and uncomfortable with. And somehow God seems to line up with what you find uncomfortable or uncomfortable. And is that incredible how that works? Oh, I don't like that. And oh, my God, I must not like that either. Oh, I'm uncomfortable with that. Well, God must be uncomfortable with that as well. And when we do that, what we're basically doing is we're creating an image of God, this reflection of us. We're holding a mirror to our face rather than seeing God in Scripture. And this is where people can kind of say to this world, this culture, and saying, oh, no, no, this is okay. Because I'm okay with it. Therefore, God must be okay with it. And that's where we fall into a great deal of danger. Because what we're trying to do is line up God with who and what we are. Let me kind of give you a little test here. Uh, I came across this great article, Four Questions to Help Identify Idols in Your Life. And I think this is actually really uh, four great questions. And we're going to close with this. The first, the first question is this. Is, are you willing to compromise your beliefs for it? That is a, an excellent question. I hear people talking about relationships that they're in. And the question they'll ask sometimes is, you know, like this person that I'm interested in, um, you know, should I be interested in them? And the question you really need to ask yourself is not so much are you interested in this individual or whether they are interested in you, which is obviously a good question to ask as well. But the question you really need to ask yourself is, will this person be a partner with me in my spiritual development? Nobody really asks that question. We ask the questions of how attractive they are, what do they make me feel like, or, or what is their earning potential in the future? No one really asks the question, will this person actually partner with me for my own spiritual development, my own spiritual transformation? Because when you ask that question, all of a sudden the other things you're asking about the other person seem kind of almost silly. Because the fact is, you don't know what your life is going to be like with this person in the future. You know, their earning potentials can kind of completely disappear. Their looks, well, let's not even get started, right? We don't, you just don't know. But what we can always count on is that spiritual component. 
Because it's not based upon externals, it's based upon internals. So the first question we have to ask ourselves is, are you willing to compromise your beliefs for it? The second question we ask is, will you get angry if you can't do it or don't get it? Oh, this is tattoo worthy. This is something that, you know, you should tweet this. This is good. Because your anger towards not getting something you want is your direct, is directly correlated to your idolatry of that thing. Nobody likes to hear that at all. What have you lost in your life that's gotten you so angry with God? Uh, sometimes I hear people, and we've talked about this before at UCC, that I always encounter the eustas. Right? I used to go to church. I used to believe in God. So as a, as a milkman, and yes, I'm a milkman. I deliver milk a couple of days a week. I encounter a whole bunch of different people on my milk route. And uh, because I am who I am, I like to kind of get to know people and hear their stories a little bit and kind of learn a little bit about their past. And sometimes I'll encounter people who, you know, used to believe in God or used to go to church. And I'm always interested. I'm always fascinated. I always want to know. And not to be, uh, not that I can convert them or bring them back, but I'm just curious, what was the trigger for you to abandon your faith? I'm always curious to know that question because it's something we're seeing in our culture more and more. And what I find at least half the time is some moment of pain, some moment of suffering, some moment of not getting what they thought they should is when they decided to not believe in God anymore. One person said to me that they had uh, a loved one who was dying of a certain disease and they had a faith, they grew up in a church and that church mistakenly told them that if they believe strong enough, hard enough, that this person will be restored to health. And just to be clear, of course, if anybody's going through suffering and pain, we just, we want to say, yeah, okay. But the question we have to ask ourselves is not so much what will take place, the outcome, because we just don't know, and God may choose to me not. I, we don't know. The question we really have to ask ourselves is, what does it say about our belief in how God should operate? And is that maybe a piece of idolatry that we don't even realize we had? The other side, the other 50%, is, is more towards pleasure. You know, I want to be a Christ follower, but I really like doing this. I really like sleeping with a whole bunch of people. I'm really enjoying that part. And because I like sleeping around with so much people, I just don't know if God... And what they'll do then is they'll modify God. They'll think, well, you know, God's okay with this. You know, I need to sow my wild roots. Uh, wild roots? Wild oats. Although I'd like to see someone so wild roots, that'd be kind of funny too, right? But people want to live that kind of lifestyle. It's like, ah, oh, yeah, I just, I, I want to live this. I want to be this. I want to experience this, right? And college and university is a great opportunity for this, right? You go away from, you go away from home, you go away from uh, your youth group, your youth pastor or, or, or whatever, your faith community, and you're off of university or college. It's like, oh, now I get to experience what I want to experience. And then you start making decisions that kind of line up more towards pleasure, right? Pleasure is what can draw us away from God as well too. So the, the question is, is what will make you angry if you don't get or don't get to do? And whatever that answer is to that question, it might be an idol in your life. Number three, do you value it over people? And this is a question that we ask whenever I, I've done uh, addiction help, whenever I work with addicts of a different kind. When you talk to an addict, whatever the substance, whatever the thing is that they want, they can't even see people anymore. They can't even see themselves anymore. All they can see is this thing that they desire greater than anything else. It is the focus of their lives. They will steal. They will prostitute themselves. They will be homeless. They will lose everything. They will lose every connection. They will lose every job. Why? Because this thing is more important than a person. Right? And the last question, does it push you closer to God or pull you farther away? 
oh, this, this is a good one. What is it that you do and will it help or hurt your relationship with God? And sometimes it's not so much even your own personal relationship because sometimes people say to me, oh, I can, I, I can do this, I can, I can do that. It doesn't, doesn't hurt me. But does it really convey to other people the seriousness of your faith? Does it really kind of convey the seriousness of how you believe in your faith so that you are willing not to? And again, I hope you're hearing me very clearly here. I'm not trying to tell you what to do. I'm not trying to tell you how you should live your lives. I don't, I don't roll that way, and, and I, I don't ever want to impose that upon you. All I want to ask, all I'm trying to help you to encourage you to ask some questions is that many of you in this room don't realize you have idols in your life. You didn't even realize they were idols. And the only way you know they're idols is because the anger that rises up within you to think that you can't experience, do, or participate, or, or hold back. You know, one of the things, you know, why, you know why churches get so uncomfortable, pastors get so uncomfortable when they talk about tithing or giving or however you want to look at that? It's because people think that money is theirs. And you know what? It is. Have at it. However you want to do it. Your paycheck, how big or how little, that's, that's a whole different conversation. It's yours. But the Bible tells us there's a spiritual discipline of saying, you know what? I'm going to take a portion of this and I'm going to give it back to God. Whatever that is, whatever you decide that is, that, that it is a spiritual discipline. And people get angry about that. Ah, it's like, you realize that this might be an idol for you if, you just, you're, if you're so, if this reaction rises up within you, right? It's like, oh. Now, asking questions of like, how, how's the church using the money? And, you know, is it going towards a, you know, um, building a sky dome over the church or whatever it would be? That's a great conversation. That's a whole different conversation. But the spiritual discipline of, of participating, acting in that way, the anger you have towards that is not about the object itself. It's not the, it's not the discipline itself. It's in the idolatry you've placed upon resources. It just, it is. And this is why this, this topic is so uncomfortable because we are living in a culture where Christians are so full of idols and they don't even realize it. And the reason they don't realize it is because no one ever thinks they're entering idolatry because there's no gold Buddha in their house or there's no you know, um, image they have to salute to every morning. But there are lots of emotional reactions we have to things in our lives that we think we deserve or own or have. And as soon as someone even just even just, just says, maybe you shouldn't, or maybe not as much, or maybe not even at all, right? A good thing just has become an ultimate thing. Let me close. Um, the letter to uh, the letters of John, right? The, the, um, so there's the the, um, the Gospel of John, but then he writes letters. Now, what's interesting about John's letters are John is the last surviving disciple. All the other disciples have been killed, right? The Neronian persecution about 60 A.D. got rid of most of the disciples and many of the church leadership, right? But instead of destroying the church, it actually grew the church, right? But remember, John was uh, he was exiled to this place called Patmos, right? This island of Patmos. And he's the last surviving disciple. And by the time he writes his letter, historians believe that he might be one of the last people to have seen Jesus in the flesh. And there's a generation of the church that's growing up now hearing about Jesus but not seeing him. It may sound familiar to you. So John, John's letters are to a church that perhaps has forgotten Jesus as the person, as a miracle worker, as a, as a profound teacher, and the resurrection, and have been told by their parents about it or by other people. Remember, generations are very small back then because lifespans are small. So when John writes his letter, he's writing to a church, he's writing to a group of people who may not have seen Jesus in the flesh. 
So his letters are very important because he's trying to convey the importance, the, the, the sacredness of who God is to a generation growing up who has neither seen Jesus nor seen his miracles, right? Remember, if you're writing in the first century and you're writing to people who've seen Jesus, they're like, oh yeah, I remember that. Remember when he took that fish and that bread and fed all those people twice? Yeah, I remember that. Not a hard sell. It is a different sell altogether with a generation that never, heard, never saw that. Did this really happen, John? Yeah, I was there. Yeah, but you're old. Did it really happen? I know, it really did happen. So when John writes his letter, he writes it in such a way to kind of teach this next generation. I think it's so interesting in 1 John chapter 5, he says this, loving God means keeping his commandments. It's kind of weird. I thought God is love. We just love God, right? And, and 1 John's where we get God is love, right? But <clears throat> John seems to say that Loving God means keeping his commandments. Remember I told you last week that God's commandments are presupposed by loving of him. If somebody tells you something that's important to them and you know that they love you, that has a bit more weight than just thinking that they're trying to tell you that. If you've ever worked for a boss, and I don't want to say the boss loves you because that's creepy. And uh, if, they, if they do talk about that, speak to your HR rep for sure. Um, but if you know your boss or the person you work for actually cares about you, like cares about as a human being, and that boss comes up to you and says, listen, this person dropped out of their shift. I need to, I need to cover his shift. And you're like, yeah, absolutely. I would do that for you because I know that you would do it for me and that you've, you're a great boss, right? I have such a boss. My, my boss, uh, Jimmy, be the guy I work for when I deliver milk, he is the best human being. The only reason I've, I've, I, I continue to deliver milk for him is because he's, he's trying to recruit me to work full-time for him, which I will not do. Uh, I don't think I can survive being a farmer. It's too much work. It's these people, you, just when you know, a farmer, they're not made of human flesh. I, I think they might be robots. Uh, I, I, can't, I can't guarantee that, but this 65-year-old farmer can outwork me, and I'm a pretty good worker. So uh, I'm just telling this right now, right? But Jim Eby is the best. Right? Like every time you've had uh, come to one of our, our, our combined church gatherings, do you ever notice how much chocolate milk we have? Next Sunday when we have at Wellesley Community Church, there's going to be lots of chocolate milk. You know why? Because my boss is generous. And if I ask him for extra chocolate milk so that my church can enjoy it, you know what he says? Yes. So if he ever comes to me and says, hey, can you work extra or can you do something for him? The answer for me is always yes. Why? Because I know, he, first of all, he cares about me because he does. But I also know, too, that he's willing to do this for me as well, too. Because this summer, I've got a, I've got a camp i got to speak at. I've got to fly for a podcast. And I, I said to him, I can't deliver milk. He's like, no problem. I'll take care of it. No, 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 no anger, nothing. Just, yeah, no problem. I'll take care of it. So when someone like that says something to you, you go, yeah. Well, God's kind of saying the same thing to us. God wants us to presuppose. He wants us to pre-understand something. He loves us. He doesn't just love us. He adores us. He lavishes his love upon us. So when he gives us his, his commandments, he doesn't do it because he hates us. He doesn't do it because he wants to ruin our fun. He doesn't do it because he just thinks we want to be miserable. He does it to protect us. So when John's saying this, loving God means keeping his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. For every child of God defeats this evil world and we achieve this victory through our faith. And who can win this battle against the world? Only those who believe that Jesus is the Son of God. So what John does so interestingly here, we're going to kind of, at the very end, we're going to connect this together, is John's saying, you know, these commandments from God are actually a part of our relationship with Jesus. 
and how do we overcome the world? How do we overcome the evil in the world? How do we overcome the apathy in the world? How do we overcome the hate in the world? How do we overcome and the injustice in the world? By loving God. By keeping his commandments. It's by showing the world that we are a people of a different rule set. We are, we are a people of the kingdom of heaven. We are kingdom people, and kingdom people live differently. We rejoice differently. We mourn differently. We use our resources differently. We are kingdom people. And that is what is going to tell the world that we believe what we believe. Not by our lip service. Not by how hip our pastor is or unhip, you know. These things are not going to convince the world that God is true. What is going to convince the world that God is true is what we are willing to do to sacrifice, to serve, to live according to what he wants for us.